Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you this morning to meet me in the letter of Jude. The letter of Jude. It's tucked away in our New Testament. So if you find the second easiest book of the Bible to find, that is the book of Revelation at the back, and scroll back just one page, you'll find the letter of Jude. We begin this morning a four-week series on this short letter, just one chapter. And if you're wondering why Jude and why now, let me give you three reasons. First, we have spent a significant amount of time as a church in the Old Testament over the past few years. We have successfully concluded the first book of Kings, which is no small feat in and of itself. We have now for over two years at our midweek prayer gatherings been marching consecutively through the Psalms. Uh, We have now begun at our midweek Bible study, a study of Deuteronomy. And just this year, we've had three sermons in Proverbs and one in the book of Psalms. So we've, we've spent a good amount of time in the Old Testament. And I know it's not a good thing to brag, but I have to admit that I brag to one pastor friend in particular that I have never sensed any grumbling at this church, that we spend so much time in the Old Testament. I love that about this church, that if the word of God is open, there is delight and there is joy. But it is good that we turn to the New Testament as well. So reason number one, we spent a a lot of time in the Old Testament. It's good to go to the New Testament. Reason number two, the letter of Jude is very, very relevant. Yes, all of Scripture shares that great characteristic of being relevant, But I think we'll see that there is a particular relevance that emerges uh, quite evidently in this letter. That's the second reason. Third reason is that the letter of Jude is arguably the most neglected part of the New Testament. Again, I think it'll become evident why that is, but uh, let us do our best not to neglect anything that God has said. I want to label just the first four verses of Jude with what might be the most important in this, the most important word in this whole book, and that is the word contend. Contend. And I'm going to read the whole letter. It's just 25 verses, but let me give you just two tips for listening to this. First is just pay attention to the tone. Is it a warm tone? Is it an aggressive tone? Is it a cold tone from the author? Uh, What is it? Just be mindful of that. And then secondly, pay attention to the place that conduct has in this letter. Is he focused on godliness, ungodliness? What kind of conduct is Jude focused on? I think if uh, we have those tips in mind, we'll get a lot even out of just this first reading of the letter. So Jude, starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to learn your word and we want to love your word, and we want to live your word. And we are hopeless to do these things on our own, so we pray now that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, who with you and the Son rules and reigns both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, I wonder if you know anyone 
who's ever suffered from identity theft. If you know someone from proximity who suffered from this, then you just, you know how damaging this can be to someone's life, even destructive. You lose a lot of money when you have identity theft. You, you lose actual money that you had in the bank account. Oftentimes you lose money that you were hoping to have for retirement in the future. You lose money on legal fees. You lose all sorts of money from identity theft. You also lose time, that most precious of resources, trying to figure out how this happened, who did it, when it happened. You lose time. There's so much loss. Maybe worst of all, you end up losing trust in humanity. How could someone who you've never met do such a violent thing to you as if you're some brute animal that it doesn't matter what happens to your resources, what happens to your identity? There's a significant amount of loss when someone steals someone's identity. Identity theft is not a joke. Millions of families suffer every year, and it can actually destroy someone's life. But I want to submit to you that there is another kind of identity theft that can absolutely destroy your life. Because it not only has ramifications for this life, it has ramifications for the life to come. This identity theft, it's a lot more dangerous, it's older, and it's more prominent than the one we were just describing. And it's the one that Jude actually addresses. It's the identity theft of the church. Individuals, peoples, people, groups of people, identifying as a church, they're not actually a church, identifying as true church leaders, they're not true church leaders, identifying with the gospel, even though they don't contain the gospel, they're stealing the the identity of the church of God that he purchased by his blood. To identify, to misidentify something like that is a serious crime, and it's the crime that Jude is addressing here in this letter. Now, the reason it's more dangerous is because it deals with eternal reality. So it begs a few questions. How can you, brother, how can you, sister, identify a true church? How can you identify true teaching in a true church and true teachers, true preachers of the true gospel? Those are important questions that we need to be able to answer. Because if we get that answer wrong, there are serious consequences. Now, this is how I think Jude wants to help us this morning. I don't think Jude or myself can help you protect your online data. But I do think that he can help us in our pursuits of identifying a true church. And if Jude would have us walk away with one thing in these first four verses, I think it's this. That the true church contends for the true faith. This is what he wants us to walk away with. The true church contends for the true faith. There are three components there. All of them are very important. We need to know who the true church is. We need to know what that true church does. Namely, they contend, they fight. And what is it that they're contending for? They contend for the true faith. Well, the way I want to progress through this text is just in sequence. We'll look verse by verse, but I just want to ask three questions as we progress. We're going to see uh, an answer to the question, who are you? And then we're going to see the question, what to contend for? And thirdly and finally, who to contend with. So first, who are you? Second, what to contend for? And third, who to contend with? So let's begin at the start once again. Look down at verse 1 of Jude. Who are you? 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. We'll pause right there. This is who's writing. His name, according to our English translations, is Jude. You might have a little footnote there. Uh, Very few translations translate his name the way that it would have been properly understood. His full name is Judas. Uh, But there's a reason why our English translators use his nickname Jude. It's because there's another Judas who seems to have brought irredeemable reproach upon that name, namely Judas Iscariot. The reason they use Jude is so that we're, there's no confusion. You know, a little kid says, Mom, wasn't Judas the one who betrayed Jesus and now he's got some airtime in the New Testament? It's a different Jude. This is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. In Mark 6, 3, we, we read about how Jesus was teaching in his hometown and they were amazed at his authority. And the people asked, is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So not only is he servant of Jesus Christ, but we are almost certain that the Judas described in Mark 3 is is the Judas writing the letter of Jude, namely the half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one who grew up with Jesus. This is one who saw him grow in stature and in favor with God. And how does he identify himself? Not as half-brother of Jesus, but as what? As servant of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you have siblings. I have siblings. You need to know something real special about your sibling to call him or her your Lord and your master. What does Jude know here about Jesus that allows him to say, no, he's not just my half-brother. This is my Lord and Savior. This is, I am his servant, literally his slave. If anyone had dirt on Jesus from growing up, it would be Jude. Remember when we were playing basketball one time, Jesus, and you let that word fly? If anyone knew anything about Jesus, it'd be Jude, but he doesn't say he's just a good man because he's not a good man to Jude. This is his Lord. He is his slave. What glory in that word, servant of Jesus Christ. He's also a brother of James, another one of Jesus' half-brothers. James is someone who emerges as one of the pillars of the, of the early church. So Jude, in a, in a very real sense, takes a back seat to his brother James. So that's who's writing this letter. Who's he writing to? Look, at, uh, look down again. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Did you catch how exceptionally warm this greeting is and how exceptionally warm that benediction, that that benediction at the end of the letter? This whole letter is sandwiched in the most warm terms that could ever be used for the church. This is who he's writing to. And, And these people, they're marked by three things. They're called, they're beloved, and they're kept. Called, beloved, kept. Now, I don't know about you, but if we took a hat and we took some little sheets of paper and wrote on them, called on one, beloved on a second sheet, kept on a third sheet. We put them in a hat and we said, draw one. Which one do you hope for? If you could only choose one thing to describe you, what would you choose of these three? I think it'd be hard to choose. Well, let's, let's start here. Called. I'd love to be called. What does it mean to be called? Well, we could spend a lot of time here, but here's the question that I think begs to be answered. Have you heard the voice of your good shepherd? Has he called you? 
Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. They, they don't confuse the voice of God with other voices because they know him personally and they love him. Now, what I'm advocating for is not, have you heard an audible voice of God? That's not what I'm advocating for. But has the Holy Spirit borne witness with your spirit that you are his son or his daughter? That question is not marginal. That is of utmost importance. Because if the Holy Spirit has not borne witness with your spirit, if he has not called you by the power of his word, then you're in a precarious position this morning. These people, he knows they've been called. They've heard the voice of their shepherd. And this call, it, it has a particular effect on people. You ever hang out with someone and all of a sudden they get a phone call and you can tell that that's an important call. And as you see them answer that phone call, their, their, their face moves from serious to joyful to exuberant. There's an effect on that phone call, whether they got a promotion or whether they heard good news from a friend before the call, they were different than after they received the call. And that's how you identify whether you've been called by our most heavenly father. Have you been born again? That's the question that it boils down to. If you've been born again by the spirit of God, then you have a right to say, I've been called by God. If I had to choose between the three, I think I'd choose this. I want to be called by God. But then I remember there's a second characteristic. He says, those who are beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father. What a beautiful preposition, in God the Father. Not beloved by God the Father, but beloved in God the Father. Now, it's an undisputed fact that the best couches in the world are those couches that when you sit in them, you just, you just sink into them. They're so comfy. They're so deep. They just envelop you. And you never want to get up. Even if you could get up, it's impossible to. But they're so comfortable. It surrounds you. It's as if it captures you in the couch. This is sort of like the love of God for us. It doesn't just come to us on a two-dimensional plane saying, you know, through the words on on the book, through the eyes, into the heart. No, we are in the love of God, our Father. Beloved in him. It's as if to say, you're swimming in the love of God. There's not one part of you that is untouched by the love of God. God doesn't love 80% of you. God doesn't just love 99.9% .9 of you. You are beloved in God, the Father. That will change your life. Okay, I know I said I wanted to be called by God, but this is a beautiful characteristic. I think I'd choose beloved in God, the Father. But then I remember there's just one more. Kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. What does this mean, kept for Jesus Christ? It means that your security, brother, it means that your security, sister, it doesn't lie in how well you hold on to Christ but how well he holds on to you. Can anyone else testify with me in here this morning that if your hope was in how well you could hold on to God, you'd be worse than hopeless like me? But if your hope is in the fact that God in Christ keeps you, he keeps you and you are kept for him, hallelujah, praise be to God. I can hardly hold on to him for 10 minutes, but my hope is in him holding on to me and our hope is him holding on to us. Of those whom the Father has given Christ, he has not lost one of them. 
he has not lost one of them. There's a particular glory to that verse we just sang in, in Christ alone. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand. That's an amazing verse, and it's thoroughly biblical. All right, if I had to pick one, maybe I'll change my mind one more time. I want to be kept for Jesus Christ. But beloved, what if we didn't have to pick one of three? What if, what if God looked at you this morning and he said, you are called, you are beloved in God the Father, and you are kept for Jesus Christ? What an amazing thing that we don't have to pick one of these, thing, one of these three things, but God says, this is who you are. This is who they were, who Jude was writing to. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, this is who you are this morning called, beloved, and kept. Do you know that about yourself? Do you, do you know that this is the way that God looks at you? Yes, there's a certain hatred we should have about our sin. And the hatred should be rooted in the love of God because it is something that God is not pleased with. But this, he, doesn't, he doesn't say to those who are sinners, to those who are all messed up, But he says, this is how you're actually characterized as a people. Well, then he prays for them very briefly. Look down again. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I think we're going to appreciate a lot about Jude. But one of the things I appreciate most is that Jude is not interested in marginal church growth. He's interested in exponential church growth. He doesn't say, may mercy, peace, and love be added to you. Just add a little bit more love. We'll sprinkle it on here and there. He says, may these things be multiplied to you. I love this prayer. It's concise. It's brief. This is a prayer you can pray before you get out of bed in the morning, before you even brush your teeth. It's probably one you should pray in your head before you brush your teeth. But this is a prayer with concision. This is a prayer with power. May mercy peace, and love be multiplied to you. I wonder if this is characteristic of our prayer lives, if we are just beseeching God for just little things when he's really inviting us to say, seek me for multiplication. Seek me that I might pour out grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, love upon love. This is the way we ought to pray, and this is how Jude prays for the people that he's writing to. So this sets the tone. You might have gotten caught up in the middle of the letter and think this is all a negative letter. We'll we'll get to the challenging stuff. But this is such an amazing way to begin this letter. If this is all we had, we would have to say this is an incredibly warm introduction to the letter. Well, people with such a remarkable identity, it, it makes you wonder, do they have a remarkable responsibility They have such an amazing identity. They must be given such a remarkable task uh, to accomplish. This leads us to the second question, which is what to contend for. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He reminds them once again of who they are. In case you forgot, in the prayer that I just prayed very briefly, you are the beloved. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you 
And notice that love was something he prayed for for them. I don't think they forgot, but this is so thoroughly who they are that he reminds them. This beautiful word, beloved, will come up again in verse 17 and in verse 20. Well, then he starts off by saying, I really wanted to write about something else, but but I had a change of plans. What was his original writing strategy? He said, I want to write to you about our common salvation, our common salvation. But something more urgent came up. Now, by him saying this, he's ratcheting up the importance of what he's about to say. Because I don't know about you, but salvation seems like a pretty important thing to write about. So to set aside our common salvation in lieu of something else, whatever this thing is, it's got to be very important. It's like the middle manager at your work who says, I got something really serious to talk to you about, but uh, the CEO's got something even more important to talk to you about. Uh, We'll talk after you talk to the CEO. The CEO's got something real important to talk about. Jude, he's a good leader in the church, and as a slave and servant of Jesus Christ, he can't just write about whatever he wants. He needs to write about what God wants him to write about. So I want to write to you about our common salvation, but I had to write to you about something else. And what is it? The faith. The faith. He didn't just want to write to them about faith, generally speaking, a belief, but about the faith. That definitive article, the, it's so important here. It's synonymous with the gospel. I want to write about salvation. I had to write to you about the gospel. So what is the gospel? As Pastor Will says, it's the glory of God in the story of Christ. The glory of God in the story of Christ. It's the news above above all news about the name above all names. Here's what Luther says. He says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. It's a treasure. Here's what Paul says, a, a better source than Luther himself. He says, now I would remind you, right into the Corinthians, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. He's about to tell us what the gospel is which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. No gospel, no salvation. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is one of the great gospel summary statements in all of the Bible. What does it focus on? It focuses on the person of Jesus Christ, lived a life, died a substitutionary atoning death in our place, was buried, was raised again from the dead, appeared to all sorts of people, namely the apostles, 500 plus brothers, some of whom are still alive, some are t- have fallen asleep, they're dead, but they're not dead dead, they're sleeping because they're going to be raised in new life because Jesus was raised to new life. This is the gospel and it's according to the scriptures. Do you notice that twice? Jesus is the center point of all of the Bible, and he is the center point of the gospel. Now, if we are going to do the thing that Jude is about to ask us to do, then we need to know what the gospel is. 
If you're looking to store more scripture in your heart, then can I commend to you 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8? Store this in your heart. Memorize it. This will provide so much strength to you as you seek to live the Christian life. Well, that's what Paul says. What about the early church? We have the Apostles' Creed, and we're going to actually cover it a bit later. Uh, And it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because we have any evidence that an apostle wrote it, but because it is so thoroughly apostolic in its doctrine. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, the reason the early church wrote the Apostles' Creed is not because they were nerdy Christians and they wanted some sort of creed and confession that they could all unite around, but because they're practical Christians. Creeds are not for nerdy Christians. Creeds are for practical Christians because creeds give you something to hold on to when you recognize that not everyone believes the apostolic gospel that was once for all delivered. This is why we do them. And there, you can memorize the Apostles' Creed. You can memorize 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if you've told yourself otherwise, but you can. It might take you all year, but that might be the best thing you do all year is trying to learn these simple gospel summaries. These things, I tried to give you just pepper different statements from different people. They are all about the faith, the faith that we are to contend for, the gospel. So this is what the true church contends for, the faith, the gospel. But it begs the question, well, what is not the gospel? What doesn't actually qualify as the gospel? Here's for starters, this might ruffle a few feathers, salvation alone. Salvation alone is not the gospel. It's part of the gospel. The gospel is not less than salvation, but it's not the entirety of the gospel. Here's what I mean by this. There's a longtime professor at North Park University just here in Chicago. His name's Scott McKnight. And in his book called The King Jesus Gospel, he says, there are a lot of evangelical churches that should actually actually be called soterian. The reason he says this is because evangelical is from the Greek euangelion, and we translate it evangelical, the evangel, gospel. So to be an evangelical church is to be about the evangel, the gospel. But he says, a lot of evangelical churches and names are not about the gospel, They're simply about salvation, the the soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So they should be called soterian. A lot of churches, it's just get out of jail free card, believe in Jesus, and you you, you escape hell, and that's it. Well, that's good news, certainly. It's part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. And we don't glorify God the way we should if that's the only thing we focus on in this life. William Still faithfully pastored for more than five decades in Aberdeen, Scotland, and he says this about the gospel. There are profounder things by far in the Bible than what is called the simple gospel, although they issue from it. Indeed, in a sense, those who proclaim almost exclusively forgiveness of sins and justification only make known the preliminaries to the best good news, which is not that our sins are put away and that we are justified in God's sight, wonderful though that is, but that God wants us for himself. And to that end brings us to the birth in Christ, the new birth. After all, the death of Jesus, for all its wonder, is a means to an end, which is not merely that we may be right and clean, but that we may be his, which involves personal relationship 
in love. Beloved, here's the gospel. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Not that we would have a get-out-of-jail-free card before the judgment throne of God, but that we might be his. This is the mother promise of all the Bible. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And this is what happens in Jesus Christ. He claims us for his own. What glory and what grace. This is why the Bible doesn't end with a picture of some abstract conceptual heaven with a bunch of chubby cherubim floating around playing harps, but it ends with a whole new creation restored and renewed and filled with the glory of God. And there is no sun there because the sun, Christ Jesus, is the very brilliance and the radiance of the glory of God. We don't need a sun. The whole creation, the whole universe, all of the cosmos have been renewed in Christ. We're not just getting out of hell for free. We get to know God now and forevermore because we have a redeemer, not just a savior. Well, this is what he's concerned with, but what are we to do with the faith, the gospel? Simply contend for it, contend for it. This is the whole purpose why Jude is writing, that we would fight, that we would contend for this thing that we call the gospel. That's why I, I was really tempted to try to come up with a better sermon title. But I, if, if you walk away with anything, I want you to remember one word, contend. This is what we're called to do. Not merely believe in the gospel, though that's certainly first, but to contend for it. Put up a real fight. Fight the good fight of faith. But you say, okay, Eric, I, I see that he's saying this. What does this actually mean to contend for the faith? Give me something to work with here. Let me give you five suggestions about how we contend for the faith. First, we need to know who we are. If we are to contend for the faith, we need to know who we are. We need to know our identity. Because if you don't first know that you're called, beloved, and kept, then why would you contend for this thing? It is the good news because it's God's love set upon us. So we need to first know who we are. Second, we need to know the gospel. If we don't know the gospel... Well, it's like heading headfirst into warfare with no weapon. What are you fighting for? For the gospel. So we need to know it well. So I commend to you for a second, third time, considering memorizing 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, the Apostles' Creed. These things are our weapon in our warfare. Third suggestion is to promote the gospel. Promote the gospel through evangelism, through proclamation, through discipling. Earlier, I said the first thing we need to know is who we are, because I believe that most Christians who don't evangelize is because they don't know who they are first. They think, if I evangelize, God is going to love me more. But they don't recognize that, no, I'm, I already have the unbound love of God set upon me in Christ. And therefore, I evangelize, not so that God loves me more, but because he has already fully loved me. And I'm simply trying to invite people into this amazing story that we call the redemption of the world. If we don't know who we are, we won't promote the gospel. So first, know who we are. Second, know the gospel. Third, promote the gospel. Fourth, protect the gospel. This is what it means to contend for the gospel, is we need to protect it. And what I mean by this is we need to keep a close watch on our doctrine. We need to keep a very close watch on it, always testing it by the word of God. 
and always testing it by the cross of Jesus Christ. Luther said, the cross is the test of anything. Because you all know this. You've seen this online. You've heard this on radio preachers. You can get this to say whatever you want it to say. Because you don't focus on the thing the Bible focuses on, namely Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And all of a sudden, you start hijacking it, abusing it, perverting it to say what you want. But we need to protect the gospel, not just promote it. We have nothing to promote if you don't protect the gospel in the first place. So that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is to put on the weapons of righteousness. We need to put on the weapons of righteousness. Look how Isaiah describes God's servant, and he's worth imitating. Uh, This ultimately referring to Christ, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Jesus Christ, God's servant, adorns himself with the weapons of righteousness. What we call uh, the, the, uh, in Ephesians 6, when Paul contends that we fight the good fight in the spiritual warfare, the armor of God. Paul will call them in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, weapons of righteousness. He'll call them weapons of our warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. And as I just mentioned, he calls them the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. I wish I could delve into each piece of equipment line by line. We obviously don't have time. But we need to adorn ourselves every day with salvation, righteousness, truth, with the gospel, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with prayer. These are our weapons that we contend with. Most of them are defensive, so we're protecting the gospel. But the word of God and prayer, these are our offensive weapons as we fight the fight of faith. Well, it begs the question now, what's the history of this thing that we are to contend for? Where did this gospel show up from? If this is what we are supposed to do, then then what's its origin? Well, he says, it was once for all delivered. It was once for all delivered. As if to say, there's no other gospel and there's no better gospel. We're not waiting for any other gospel. You remember what Paul says to the church in Galatia? He says, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, if I come preaching to you another gospel, woe to that person. May they be cursed. He essentially says, God damn that person. Because there is no other gospel. There's no better gospel. And to flirt with something and call it the gospel and confuse people is actually to jeopardize salvation, justification, glorification, and our eternal standing with God himself. It was once for all delivered. The only thing we're waiting for is for that happy ending in the new creation. It's also for all, pe- it's all, it's for all people. Once for all delivered. We should proclaim this gospel to every man, woman, boy, and girl under the stars of heaven. This is called the free offer of the gospel. We, only God knows who his elect are. Our responsibility is to simply go out and to proclaim it. And it was a delivered gospel passed down carefully by God through his people. Now, notice who it's entrusted to. It's to the saints. It was once for all delivered to the saints, not the Pope, as if that was ever a thing, not pastors, not deacons, not evangelists. It was delivered to the saints. The church of Jesus Christ has a corporate responsibility to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to them. Now, this is so important that it was delivered to the saints 
because it gives every single person here so much purpose in their life. You might have shown up here this morning feeling that life is totally aimless. You don't like your job. You don't like this, that, and the other. And it's like, what, what am I doing in life? Why do I exist? Well, Jude comes in and says, you exist to contend for the gospel. You exist for the most important job on planet Earth. You have an amazing calling. We don't know if Mark Twain said this. You know, we, we kind of just attribute things to Mark Twain if we don't know who they belong to. But uh, someone said, the two most important days of your life are the day on which you were born and the day on which you discover why you were born. And one, take this with a huge amount of salt because I don't know this. This is mere speculation. But I want to believe that one of the people that Jude was writing to, when they received this letter, it was one of the best days of their lives because they woke up feeling like they had no purpose in life. And then Jude tells them, you know what? You've got the most important job conceivable. You exist to contend for the faith. Brothers and sisters, do you know why you exist? Certainly we all know that we exist, but do you know why you exist? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us. You see what the church does here? She contends for the faith. So we need to fight and we need to labor with all of Christ's energy. And we do this in community, not by ourselves. So very briefly, we need to get to the third question. So first, we know who we are. That's one-third of the equation. Second, we need to know what to contend for. But to fill this out, we need to answer this last question. Who do we contend with? And let's look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be very brief here for the sake of time, but that's fine. The majority of the next few paragraphs are going to flesh out this verse, verse four. So you'll need to come back next week and the next to figure out more about this. But he says, here's who you contend with. They're called, quote unquote, certain people. Real helpful, Jude. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for the really helpful details. Certain people have crept in. These people, they're certainly uh, false teachers, false teachers of the gospel. It's also their followers because a, a leader who has no followers is simply a man going on a stroll, and a man on a stroll is no threat to the church of God. So it's these people certain people. Look at verse 10, these people, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 19. Throughout this whole letter, he just calls them these people, certain people. Now, before we try to nerd out and figure out these people's names, let's realize Jude gives us a great gift here. By not identifying it with one particular false teacher, he reminds us that this thing keeps happening time and time again throughout history. And this is happening in our day. But these people, they're in their midst. They're in their midst. They're, they're in the church gathering. They're right there. It's not the big bad wolf out there. They're in their midst. So how'd they get in? Well, they crept in. They creeped in. I'll let you know your sanctified imagination think about how these people got in the church. But you got to love the language he uses. They crept in unnoticed. They're subtle. They're deceptive. They're secretive. They're subversive. They, they use the, the old satanic tactics that he's always used. The serpent, who is the devil in Genesis 3, what, how, do we, how does God describe him in his book? He says, now the serpent was more crafty. 
He was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He was very subversive, very subtle, very secretive. And since the beginning of the fall of man, Satan has been using this tactic. Just creep in, be very subtle. Just get in the church, be, be under the radar, and we'll wreak some havoc from the inside. No one ever identifies as a false teacher. Wolves dress up as sheep. They look, they sound a lot like gospel teachers, but they're full of vicious intent. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, Paul says that we don't fight against flesh and blood. Is Jude contending for something else? Because he's saying these certain people. I think Jude and Paul fit perfectly together. The dark spiritual forces of this present evil age disguise themselves through these evil people. So we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting the dark demonic spirits that are essentially, uh, that, that are through these false teachers. So we don't use the same weapons that the world uses in its warfare, but we use the weapons of righteousness. Okay, so first thing they do, they creep in. Secondly, they pervert the grace of God. They don't deny the grace of God. They love the grace of God. If they were hanging out with Paul and he asked him that question in Romans 6, and he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? These teachers would say, yeah. The logic makes sense. If you sin more, then God just has to pour out more grace and we all love the grace of God and there's more grace. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, not knowing that the grace of God gives you power against sin, not to sin. They pervert the grace of God into selfishness, sexual immorality, greed, and a slew of other things that we'll look at here. They creep in, they pervert the grace of God, and they finally, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Functionally, they deny him, because how could you call someone master and Lord if you don't follow his commands? I don't know if that's ever been the, the, the way a, a servant relates to their master, So they functionally deny him, and they probably also explicitly deny him. They deny his divinity, some deny his humanity, some a combination of both. And the apostle John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So to deny deny Jesus Christ is to do the work of antichrist. So finally, what's God going to do with them? He's going to condemn them. They've been designated for this. Brothers, sisters, this is good news. Condemnation is ahead for those who pervert the grace of God, who abuse the crucified and risen Savior. That's good news. They will be judged. They will be condemned. But here are two questions we need to ask very quickly. Are they perverting the grace of God because they were already designated for condemnation? You get the logic there? Is it because of their designation for condemnation that they're perverting the grace of God? Or is it because they pervert the grace of God that he has now designated them to condemnation? Answer, both. The reason for the one is the reason for the other and vice versa. They've been designated for the wrath of God and therefore they pervert his grace. And because they pervert his grace, they are also designated for condemnation. This is who we are. This is who they are. Just like you can, you can identify the true church based on what she does, namely contending for the gospel, you can also identify false teachers by the way they creep in, deny our Lord, and pervert the grace of God and lead people to eternal damnation. 
Well, beloved, I hope that you're seeing how relevant this letter already is. We don't have to walk very far from this neighborhood to find a church that's suffering from identity theft. People in churches who are not true churches, they're not fighting the good fight of faith. They don't care about the true faith. They don't care about the gospel. We must always be on the lookout for people trying to creep in and pervert the grace of God. But this doesn't mean that, we, that we're like these covenant watchdogs that always has their antennas up and every tiny little thing that's said is scrutinized. No, we contend, but it's in the warmth of gospel fellowship. If we fight and contend for this one thing, we're not going to have to fight for very many other things. And as we fight this fight, we are going to glorify the one true God who gave us the one true faith that he once and for all delivered to the one true church. This is why we exist. The true church contends for the true faith. May God help us to contend the way we ought. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.